3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation, who are traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of the First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement, and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. Good morning. Hi, Patty. Hi, Ella. Nice to be here again. Yeah, how I'm was sad, it? Sad we don't have Alice in studio with us this morning. She's unwell. Yes, down a man today. We'll, we'll miss her fun. um banter. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and how was everyone's weekend? Very good. How was I wanna hear about the St Kilda Festival. I hear you guys were down there enjoying yeah, the sunshine. Yeah, we both um, Ella and I manned um the three C R stall, which was in Alfred Square and um yeah, it was an interesting experience. Ella was there in the morning, which I think was a bit quieter, but we had quite a few people come through in the afternoon and a mixture of families and students and, yeah, just a range of people, which I thought was, you know, really good that there was kind of a broad range of ages and um, demographics sort of interested. And, and you were just telling them about the station? Or? Yeah, some of them were already listeners, um, but often they listened to one particular show, mm. so we were able to... Monday breakfast. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, introduce them to uh, the range of programs that we have and give them a little bit more information. And others um, were just curious to know more about what we did. And some people weren't even radio listeners, but hopefully they will be after they visited us. Converted them. <laughs> <laughs> and did you, do you think you made any um, firm, firm converts? Um, yeah, I think a couple. Um, yeah, there were some people that were really interested and others that I think will go away and, you know, hopefully think about it. But... Um, yeah, definitely some people were frustrated with um, what they were listening to elsewhere mm-hmm. and were quite interested in the specific programming that we had, um, you know, in the different platforms for particular um, groups and causes. So it's definitely, um, yeah, reflected interest in what we're doing, which was really positive. That's fantastic. And we'll be hearing from a new show uh, that's going to be airing on 3CR later in the show. It's, this, it's part of the sewer program, and it's about unemployed workers fighting back. So that's, um, that'll be great to hear. And uh, also segueing from that, it is the subscriber drive this week. So from the 10th into the 16th, we are looking for subscribers for 3CR. I'm a proud subscriber. I know you two are. I'm mm-hmm. a subscriber. And renewals. Renewals, yes. Renewals, of course, yes. one of the most important, keep, keeping it the current uh, li- listenership. Yeah, just to keep the funding going. For the station. Yes, rely on subscribers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so the coronavirus is bigger than newspapers at the moment. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of talk about coronavirus and a lot of different ways it's been reported. Um, there's been a lot of uh, controversy, particularly with the Herald Sun and Daily Telegraph, um, who have been accused of um, being very biased and quite racist in the way they've reported it. Mm, definitely. A lot of xenophobia coming out in the reportage and it's interesting 
uh, this is like a bit esoteric, I guess, but how uh, how race and disease are you know historically linked. You know, it's always vermin language that it's used mm. against like a racially discriminated people. Um, and then like during segregation, how there were uh, there were the the water saps were segregated because of the idea of disease. Those those the the two are very intricately mm. linked. Yeah, I think there's often a um, that concept of uncleanliness can um, be at the core of you know historical um, race issues in a number of countries, um, and it's you know it's a real. I don't think I don't think it's necessarily a, a log- well definitely not a logical thing, but um, we do have. <clears throat> this perception now that's coming out with some some people, evidenced by um, reports of just a dent general, um, I suppose, apprehension. There was a dentist in um, the Gold Coast who reported um, that her patient asked her to, you know, I shouldn't shake your hand, perhaps just in case you've got it. <laughs> but he's um, going to be putting his hands in her mouth, I would assume. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, she felt um, stigmatised. And, uh, yeah, that's not a good thing. Yeah, it's, I guess with all racism based in fear, um, like there's a lot of evidence to show that there's high rates of racism mm. uh, in places where there's high rates of disease or infection. Um, so I think, yeah, it's fear-based. People aren't are misinformed. And what what were um, the, the articles in the Herald Sun specifically that were uh, criticised? Uh, so, yeah, I think they've been criticised of, um, yeah, encouraging an attitude of xenophobia um, and they, they've actually had to apologise now, but this came after a, a big, uh, sorry, petition uh, signed by over 50,000 people uh, demanding one. Wow. Um, and I think just, yeah, lack of critical thinking um, and the actual impact it's having or the implication. Uh, like you said, Claudia, it's um, having a real-world effect when people are receiving harassment or discrimination. Yeah, there are specific cases of um, people who have, um, you know, been harassed just mm. sitting on a tram um, and, you know, someone comes up and sort of says, um, well, Chinese people are spreading the virus and, you know, just absolutely random with no basis for the accusation at all. Um, so, yeah, just public spaces becoming um, less friendly, I suppose, for Asian women um, yeah, so a number of reports. Yeah, and I think we're hearing similar reports overseas too in the States um, and also in Japan, apparently. Terrible, uh, yeah, terrible news. I think we might start off with a song today, guys, to lift our spirits. Yeah. Now, now that, um, that Alice is sick. <laughs> this is Given Time by Fulton Street. Uh, one of it, Fulton Street's one of our favourite uh, bands to play on Monday mornings.
broken hearts I can't take back what I've done Till behind I face my body Don't feel right I'm trying, trying to be as wrong talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulation. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out.
Struggling Kings with Ocean, and before that we heard uh, Fulton Street's Given Time. And so, Cloudy, you, you'll be interviewing later uh, Molly Wilmot, is that, is that right? Yeah, I've got Molly coming in. She's the president of the National Union of Students, um, and she'll be talking about the latest response from their student body in relation to the coronavirus. Um, I believe there was a conference of all the um, uh, presidents of the student unions around Australia last week that she was at, and uh, I'm sure it got some discussion there. So, um, yeah, she'll be coming in at eight to give us an update and um, and just sort of get a feel for an on on the ground um, image of how people are, are feeling um, coming back to university, and uh, yeah, about about what's going on. Yeah, it's going to be so so interesting to he- hear about that because it's sort of all these different levels of people reacting to it, but the media reacting to it in a very sensationalist way, uh, the government reacting to it in, a, in sort of a spin way, and also what, what they always do with uh, with people, <laughs> uh, unwanted people, sending them to Christmas Island. Mm. Um, so uh, what? how else has Australia reacted to it, I guess, you yeah. know? Um, well, I guess we've had the government response of um, putting a ban on um, entry to Australia uh, from mainland China for anyone that's not an Australian citizen or um, a permanent resident. And um, that's basically, uh, I think that means about 100,000 um, international students are sitting in China um, waiting to come and recommence their studies. So a huge <laughs> group of people affected by that. Um, yeah, I think that's the probably the, the biggest um, uh, um action the government have taken along with those that are able to come in from mainland China are only the citizens and permanent residents and obviously they've gone off to quarantine. Mm. Um, Yeah, so we've seen quite swift action by the Australian government um, and uh, I suppose the complete ban on um, Chinese nationals coming into the the country has... uh, been part of, I suppose, what's 
um, brought the spotlight on Chinese people, um, even though the risk of the virus uh, affects all Australians or all people. um, It's sort of really drawn that focus to China. And, um, yeah, it's interesting. um, Just a few reports I got this morning. Um, One one person said um, she'd noted a real difference in the way some Australians have reacted to um, the coronavirus outbreak in comparison with the bushfire crisis. Um, She said that during the fires we saw, you know, social media going rife with outpourings of emotion and sympathy, love and grief, fundraising, um, you know, real caring for humans and animals. Um, But here it's it's like the suffering of the people... um, who are directly affected does not matter. Um, and, yeah, I think it must be a very isolating experience if you, uh, well, definitely if you or one of your family members um, have the virus and you are reading about this sort of sense of disease and um, uh, fear that comes from contact with someone. Um, but I think... Yeah, in the broader picture, and we'll be talking about this with Molly, um, that extended sort of fear to anyone who might look Chinese um, and the sort of the implication that they might be connected in some way just because of the way they look. Mm. Um, I think um, that's, that's the really um, the, the bigger picture that, um, yeah, we need to be addressing and really uh, coming down firm on anyone that's making those judgments and um, yeah. harassing people on the basis of race without any foundation. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's that's one of those things that's, that people uh, do unconsciously. You know, they'll say someone looks Chinese or they say that, you know, that they'll, they'll, uh, they do this racially profiling in their... Uh, and it's almost sort of been programmed into us in through the media, I think, of, uh, you know, like saying, uh, dividing people by race rather than, rather than, um, identity or behaviour or there's a whole range of ways we can, um, identify. And I think, um, you know, I have a Maltese and a Spanish background on my, uh, both sides of the family and, but I don't identify as, Maltese or Spanish identify as Australian and there'll be many people with a Chinese heritage who are in that same category. They might be second, third generation Australian. Um, Some of them have never been to China and, Mm, you know, somehow they're feeling um, affected because of the way they look, which really goes against, um, you know, the behaviours we want to want to stand for in Australia. Um, I also just got a a note in about some of the um, incidents of anti-China sentiment across the globe. Uh, Some of the French newspapers have um, run some really shocking headlines. Um, Yellow alert. Jesus. Yeah, (laughs) yellow peril with a question mark. so, yeah, quite surprising, really, that um, that sort of language could be reverted to um, at all. It's just that feels like it 
belongs to yeah, a bygone era. 20th century. Or exactly. <laughs> um, and in Japan, there's a shop in the town of Hakone, which is near Mount Fuji, um, that had to give an apology uh, because it posted a sign in its door saying, no Chinese are allowed to enter the store. I do not want to spread the virus. Um, so these sorts of incidents are being reported worldwide. Um, but at least we've got a crackdown from um, the Ethics Communities Council, various um, uh, representative bodies who are um, calling it out. But, um, yeah, it needs to be called out at the ground level, I think, as well. So, I think so. If, yeah, if you catch people, um, whether it's on the tram, in a public space, um, at your workplace... Yeah, it's not just a funny joke. You know, people yeah. have feelings and um, lives that they're leading. And and this is coming on the top of pre-existing um, uh, feelings that certain people might have already had. They might have already experienced racism. And, um, and yeah. this is just another thing. So it's not isolated and it's not a funny matter. And that word isolated as well, it is such an isolating experience. And if someone stands up for you when you are getting abused on the train, then it is so much more than you can, you know, you feel like you're not alone. You feel like, you know, not everyone on this tram hates me. It's only this one, you know, obviously ignorant person. Yeah, and I think it's a very um, empowering thing if someone stands up for um, and calls out um, bad behaviour. So, yeah, to and be on, encouraged. <laughs> on that note, we're going to hear later from Carol and Yanni from the Anti-Colonial Asian Alliance and they're going to read out a statement and they read out a statement in solidarity with those affected by the coronavirus and it's against racism, xenophobia and border violence. Um, But for now we'll hear a song by TJ Patrick, Bluebird. If the sun don't come out in the sky If the bluebird stops singing my, oh my, I'm not lying You and me, honey, in a home we got all we ever need If the brightest diamonds lose their shine And the stars all burn out, I don't mind I'm not crying My eyes and my ears and my smile ain't got nothing but This place You and I Gotta love to last the ages If the sixes turned out To be nine And the clock stood still Till the end of time
3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. And as well as volunteering at 3CR, you can also subscribe to 3CR, and it is our subscribe-a-thon at the moment. Uh, if you would like to subscribe, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. That's 3cr.org.au slash subscribe, and you can su- subscribe online. Or if you want to call, maybe a bit later today, not, not many people are up in studio, <laughs> uh, you can call 94198377. That's 94198377. Eight three double seven, and we'll be plugging that all week. Um, so please, please subscribe. It's you know great work that the station does. And uh, next, we're going to hear from Sue Carzis. Well, we played this audio last week, but I wanted to revisit it because it's a little bit later, and it is the start of school school term. So uh, Sue Carzis is the CEO of State Schools Relief, which is a program which provides assistance in terms of school books uh, and and school uniforms to people who need it. And she's going to tell us a little bit about how you can get in touch with State School Relief, uh, State Schools Relief and access that. State Schools Relief has been around since 1930 to assist students who come from challenging backgrounds and perhaps don't have the things they need to engage with schooling. So we can actually provide support with school uniforms, school shoes, school bags, STEM calculators and any other sort of essential learning devices such as textbooks and we do that via the schools. So the schools put on the applications on behalf of the family and that's important because it means you don't need a healthcare card necessarily because it may be you've lost your, you know, your house in a fire, it may be domestic violence, there's a whole lot of reasons which people need support for um, and that's what we're here to do. And so who can access State Schools Relief? Uh, absolutely anybody can access State Schools Relief and all they need to do is go to their school and speak to their welfare coordinator or the assistant principal or principal and just explain their situation and then the school will put the application on and we have the items out usually within 48 hours. Oh, that's really that's really good. Uh, my, my parents put three of us through high school and so I saw firsthand you know, the struggle and sacrifice that goes along with high school costs. What is the you know, average cost that parents are looking at putting their kids through school in terms of you know, yeah. textbooks and uniforms? Yeah, the average cost is $608 according to the YouthGov figures, but it can be a lot higher than that, especially if you have a, a child going into year seven where now you need to also have uh, provide a device. Uh, then there's the uniform costs as well as the books and then the school fees, and that all happens really between December and January, so it's a really expensive time. And, you know, parents feel, they do feel, you know, a sense of stress in terms of they want their, their children to have everything, and, it's, you know, it comes on the back of Christmas, and it's just incredibly stressful for many, many families. And the children also sort of carry a sense of that stress if they're going into school without, you know, the proper uniform or the proper textbooks. Absolutely, and we hear stories, really heartbreaking stories of, you know, two brothers who were sharing a uniform, so they'd go to school on alternative days, or um, kids who would just turn up to school with, with shoes that are three sizes too big or full of holes, and it's just so terribly sad, because we know for young people, you just want to be like everyone else, and you don't want to stand out for the wrong reasons, and that can be really painful, and 
Often if school if students can't get to school in the first four weeks, they don't attend. So it's a really critical time to make sure that they have what they need so they can front up to school feeling really good about themselves and feeling like they can engage with, with education. And so uniforms are a pretty big expense. I, I saw that um, uniforms and, and school bags uh, make up about uh, close to $300 or that's $600. Um, yes. as well as textbooks. Could you tell us about um, the state schools release clothing labels, students' choice? Yeah, thank you for, for mentioning that. We have started to create, we started to create our own label named students' choice a few years ago because of the costs of uniforms and we've tried to provide, well what we try to do is actually provide items where possible instead of vouchers to retailers because uh, it means that the family receives the items completely free of charge whereas if we've got to provide a retail voucher to a uniform retailer, there's often a, a co-payment required because we subsidise up to a certain amount and often those costs can be higher. So we've got our own label that we can supply where possible, but uh, depending on the colours that the schools have, and we substitute where possible. But we also retail, as a, as a, we're, we're also a retailer, so we do a lot of the special schools and that means that they're getting uh, all of their welfare items for free and they're also helping uh, state schools release by using us as their retailer. So, and also our school shoes, which are fantastic, full leather shoes uh, and great quality. We retail those at $65 uh, to help fundraise for our, for our um, welfare um, applications. So the parents that need them obviously receive them for free, but if you're another parent that just wants to buy good school shoes and support a fantastic cause, you can purchase them online at State Schools Relief um, on our website. Oh, that's excellent. Uh, so, so for our listeners who would like to use State Schools Relief for back-to-school supplies, how could they get in contact? Yes, so they can, um, as I mentioned, get in contact with their school, explain what their situation is. But if they need, if they need, if they're not getting support, they can also contact us uh, at ssr.net.au. So there's, we've got a contact email, which is contact at ssr. Uh, and they can get in contact with us and we can uh, speak with the school and ensure that the school knows how to apply for assistance as well. And for any of our listeners who'd like to donate to State Schools Relief, uh, how can they do that? Yep, if they go onto our website, um, ssr.net.au, there's a Donate Now button, um, and we're actually, at the moment, um, we're doing bushfire relief as well, with the support of the Victorian State Government, but we're also, we've had some uh, donations which we'll be putting towards providing learning devices for those who have lost their homes, so we're actually currently um, putting those together, and it's, it's quite a huge cost, so we're looking to support those students as best we can, uh, and every dollar that we uh, receive goes exactly where it should, so um, our a lot of our salaries are um, paid for by the state government, so the money that we fundraise goes directly to the cause that it should go to. So, yes, if anybody's interested in donating, we would welcome that. That was Sue Carzis speaking about the state schools relief program. And here's Chelsea Drugstore with Black Market Motel. Black Market Motel Doing all the things you do You were doing them so well Now I had you props a window To combat the smell Of late night spill Sickness and hard to tell Try to drag you out, and all the talk you heavily dispel. 
dripping down on you And tomorrow never minds what you choose They all came swooping down on you Tomorrow is a chance to lose those blues They all came swooping down on you Tomorrow be the past that follows you. They all came swooping down on you. They all came swooping down. So next up, we're going to listen to an interview I did with Sonia Randhauer on the weekend. Uh, Sonia is a former Monday Breakfast host, um, but not since 10 years. Uh, She now works as a founder of the Coalition for Everyone. Uh, This is an organization with the vision of disrupting the politics of despair and building a politics of hope through participatory, deliberative, democratic initiatives. Uh, So I spoke with Sonia on the weekend. Um, about a number of events the Coalition is putting on as part of the Sustainable Living Festival. Uh, These are all focused on addressing climate change. Uh, So I started by just asking her to tell me a bit more about what they've got planned. Well, the next event from today is going to be on Tuesday the 11th, and that's going to be our second Mock Citizens Assembly. And this one's going to revolve around fire and um, fire policy. So we're going to have an expert talking about what the policy options are, and then a lot of the time will be given over to deliberation. What makes it a mock citizens' assembly is that we will have an exercise in what's called sortition, which is randomly selecting people who will form the quote-unquote real assembly in the middle of the room. And it just gives people an idea of how sortition and random selection work and why a citizens' assembly is a good place to make hard decisions that politicians are clearly not willing to make, either on climate or really about anything else. And um, why is a citizens' assembly a good place uh, to make these decisions? Um, Well, the main reason is because we've seen that um, it it works. We know that um, politicians are facing a lot of pressures, um, poor dears, um, whether it's because of the money that it takes to run an election campaign, the ease with which lobbyists have access to politicians these days, the difficulty that ordinary people have and the lack of interest that a lot of people have in politics. So it's much easier to just take the sort of well, the routes which have been well worn by lobbyists um, and in the interests of power and big business rather than taking the interests 
um, of the Australian people as a whole seriously. The second event that we've got this week is um, actually our headline event, which is called Democracy is Not a Spectator Sport. And that really gets to the heart of what the Coalition of Everyone is about, because we're not just about citizens' assemblies. We're about changing the democratic culture through a mixture of both people's and citizens' assemblies. We've seen, for example, in the Netherlands, that even when people come together that are self-selecting to talk about policy issues in a deliberative and facilitated fashion. So we're not shouting at people across a big chasm the way that we are on media, even social media, but we're coming together and talking about why we hold the positions that we hold and how our positions might be changed. That It doesn't just change the people that are in the room. It actually can have a difference on how politicians approach their electorates and approach positions. Um, policy positions as well. So we're trying to actually um, move, make a shift in the democratic culture, which needs to happen both at speed and at scale if we are to have any impact upon the climate crisis. And for those not familiar with the concept, a citizens' assembly is essentially uh, groups of a diverse range of citizens um, getting together to work out solutions to a particular problem in a sort of structured environment. Is that right? That's right, yes. And the, the key thing that makes citizens' assemblies effective is that they're randomly selected, much in the same way as a jury is, because that way we can have a demographically representative sample of people. So, I mean, we know, for example, that it's not just women that are underrepresented in Parliament. I mean, the amount of ambulance workers that are represented in Parliament is minuscule. <laughs> there aren't people who um, are at the forefront of issues such as poverty, such as racial discrimination, it's much harder for them to get into Parliament in the first place. Whereas in a demographically um, uh, representative selection of people, you're going to have voices that you don't actually see in Parliament. And not just that, they're not just going to be the elite of those voices. So I'm not denying that there are, for example, Muslim women that get into Parliament and things like that. But they are um, from a more privileged position within their communities, whereas the ordinary working-class women find it much harder, um, as I'm sure Jackie Lambie will attest, to get into Parliament than women who come from a uh, background of privilege um, do. So in a demographically representative sample of people, you're going to have a lot more people who come from backgrounds which aren't privileged. If you're going to choose um, a out of people to, who you think would be in positions of power, your best bet is to choose old white millionaires who are male. Um, whereas if you choose a random person from a population, that's not who you're going to get. So the idea is to have a representative group of people rather than a, a room full of experts in a particular area? Um, so the idea is to have, a yes, a random group of people, but then they are informed by experts. Now, obviously, that has to be a curated process, but we find that when given access to information, along with some tools for critical thinking and bias detection, being asked why you hold the positions that you hold and to talk on a, in a facilitated environment with other people, you can come across, um, you can bridge major divides. So... It's even been shown to help bridge sectarian divides in Northern Ireland. And, I mean, that's – I don't think we have problems as hard as that here. 
I think that we are able to bridge the divide, say, between Liberals and Greens, when we have facilitated, informed discussion. And that's what deliberation is. It's facilitated, informed discussion. And people are capable of making extraordinary decisions in those circumstances, whether it is, as a, as I say, in a citizens' assembly, which is the randomly selected group, or in a people's assembly, where they are coming together, again, with that open mindset to try and get to the heart of policy issues and to become informed. But the underlying thread that joins things together is this change in democratic culture, which we need to do at speed. And is that why it's so important to have um, a, a representative group of people actually working out and developing the solutions? Because I imagine some people would think you're better off leaving it to the experts and then we can just vote for the solution. Throughout history, anti-Democrats have always said these things are best run left to the experts. It's a profoundly undemocratic way of doing things, is leaving things to the experts. What it does is it disregards the different lived experiences that people have. Um, and most of the decisions that Parliament makes, they're moral decisions. They can be informed by experts, and I don't think our MPs have enough time to actually listen to the expert judgment and opinion on the issues that are before them in the first place. Giving people that time and space to deliberate on them, ordinary people can make those important and largely moral decisions that Parliaments make. And I don't think it's just on the climate issue. We can have an ongoing um, legis uh, uh, chamber, like replacing the Senate with randomly chosen people. It's happening elsewhere in the world. So, for example, most recently, France has decided to have a standing randomly selected group of citizens to advise or to look at all legislation that's going through from an environmental perspective and to put, give their input on it. Um, as a standing body. Um, Eastern Belgium is also having a standing citizens' assembly to advise the elected members of the legislative assembly. Um, we're seeing moves in certain um, city councils around Victoria. So I think that we are seeing changes happening to get those standing deliberative bodies set up. Um, we just need to really ramp it up if we're going to address the crisis that we're facing at the moment in particular. And so, yeah, you mentioned um, this is a process that's used elsewhere in the world uh, where the assemblies will have real power or the governments will mm. actually consult with them. Did you say there's also examples of that in Australia? Or? Um, yes, there are. So, I mean, there's been – Australia was for a while one of the leaders in terms of the number of citizens' assemblies that have been held here. Um, the, we've had um, participatory budgeting arrangements by the City of Melbourne, for example. Um, Infrastructure Victoria has, um, is being guided by a citizens' assembly on where they make decisions. We've had them on obesity. Um, city councils have, uh, Geelong City Council was run by citizens' assembly for a while. So there's been quite a number of these um, processes happening. Um, but they have, one of the problems has been, for example, with the obesity one, that there, it wasn't clearly defined influence of how the Citizens' Assembly was going to um, make change. And that's partly because of the diverse number of stakeholders that were involved in that process. Um, so we, it needs to be a very clearly defined connection between the decisions which are made by the Citizens' Assembly um, and what happens next. Otherwise, it just actually deepens the disconnect that people feel between what people want 
and what politicians do or what policymakers do. Um, and that can be um, very dangerous. And it's, yeah, it's becoming increasingly apparent that our current system is broken. Um, the climate crisis is becoming increasingly critical. Um, and we've seen the rise of a lot of leaders who are promising shortcuts or quick fixes. Um, but do you think we're also seeing a rise in initiatives um, like the Coalition of Everyone, which sort of take the opposite approach and look to make systemic change? I think that we are. And I think that there are, um, there are a lot of people who recognise that the system is broken. I mean, there's um, Adam Jacoby with My Vote, for example, is another great initiative that's happening at the moment. And as I say, we're not we're looking at people's assemblies as well as citizens' assembly to help to deepen that culture of democracy that needs is at the heart of this. And obviously, we're also seeing things from the other side of the political spectrum, um, where we're seeing erosion of civil liberties, um, an erosion of the way in which. Um, the media ownership, uh, erosion of the responsiveness of politicians is um, sort of typified by the, um, the sports rort scandals. So I think that there are conflicting pressures at work here, um, and I think it's really important that we work to improve the responsiveness of our political system to the will of the people rather than the opposite. And that was Sonia Randhauer, uh, founder of the Coalition for Everyone, telling us about the events they have planned as part of the Sustainable Living Festival and discussing the importance of participatory democracy. Um, and I attended one of these events last Tuesday. I really enjoyed it. Uh, the night was titled Fashion Apocalypse, um, and it was a mock citizens' assembly focused on the environmental impact of the fashion industry. Um, so just as Sonia was explaining then, uh, the assembly involved hearing from an expert uh, before we were all sorted into small groups to come up with solutions, which we later voted on at the end of the night. Um, and the expert that evening was Nina Gabor. Uh, Nina's an eco-stylist and she does in sustainable fashion at RMIT. Um, so she spoke about a lot of the issues related to the fashion industry, and we're going to hear very briefly from what she said. The clothing industry has always existed, but fast fashion um, is a cultural trend that has exacerbated the issue of waste and pollution, which contributes to climate change. So, um, like I said, it's a trend culture where clothing is made by most retail stores. Um, it's produced cheaply, mostly made of synthetic textiles, and is designed to be disposable. Now, this is a business model that's hugely profitable to um, to uh, brands and corporations, particularly the international ones. Um, and what happens is that these clothes are put out as, tre as trends, daily, weekly, um, quickly disposed of for the next trend. And then this linear cycle continues, and all of these clothes, most of these clothes are particularly ending up in landfill. Now, this phenomenon is what has earned the fashion industry the title of being one of the most polluting industries in the world. And currently it contributes to about 10% of climate change and roughly about 1.2 billion tons of carbon emissions, more than all of the international flights and maritime marine shipping combined. And this overconsumption and waste is because we're buying clothes now um, at a far greater rate now more than before. We're wearing them fewer times, we're repairing them less, and we're throwing them away much, much sooner. 
So globally, we're consuming about 80 billion brand new garments every year, which is 400% more than what we were consuming just about two decades ago, so just about 20 years ago. Now, some of the ways that fashion impacts uh, climate changes throughout the life cycle of garments, but manufacturing um, is a big chunk of it. And just different ways like you know, chemicals and pesticides, water pollution, water usage, um, microfibers, landfill, um, biodegrading, or shall I say non-biodegrading, um, textile waste, I mentioned earlier, synthetic fibers, um, which microplastics, greenhouse gas emissions, deforestation, and energy. The fashion industry thrives on convincing people to purchase weekly, weekly trends or daily trends of new fast fashion apparel. Now this super fast turnover is at the very core of fashion's environmental degradation. The belief that we need to have now, quick, the new, all the time. And it's not just fashion, it's also in tech and food and pretty much every other industry. So I believe that if we can shift that mindset about trends in favor of um, things that last longer and are better for us as individuals, then we can also replicate that in every other, other industry, like tech, which is a big one. And this is why I coined the phrase, we need to get off the fashion treadmill, because I believe it is the root of all fashion people. Um, it's also uh, damaging to individuals' uh, mental health and emotional well-being, but I digress. So, <laughs> back on point, individuals should disrupt demand and monitor fashion brands consistently until it becomes standard practice that all clothing is manufactured with environmental best practice. And that was Nino Gabor, who spoke at the event I was at last Tuesday, Fashion Apocalypse. Uh, Nino is an, Nina sorry, is an eco-stylist and shooters in sustainable fashion at RMIT. Um, so she spoke for about 40 minutes on the evening, um, and that was just a brief clip of what she had to say. Um, and, yeah, the Coalition for Everyone have two events coming up this week, so I'd really encourage you to get along if you're interested. Um, they're held at, so one is an interactive panel titled Democracy is Not a uh, Spectator Sport, held at Trades Hall, and the other is another mock Citizens' Assembly, uh, Burning Issue, How Do We Live Like This?, which addresses issues related to the bushfires. Fantastic. And our interview with Molly Wilmot is still going to take place, but a bit later. We've actually got Kevin and Anne from the Sewer Program in studio at the moment. We're going to play a little song and then start speaking to them. So look forward to that, everybody. Rumination.
your breast, I ain't listening. Save your breast, I ain't listening. Save your breast, I ain't listening. Save your breast, I ain't listening. Now we're going to speak to Anne and Kevin, who are the hosts of a new show on 3CR, Unemployed Workers Fight Back, that will air every second Friday as part of the SUA program. The SUA, or Squatters and Unwaged Workers Airwaves program, is a weekly program about unemployed workers organising, Centrelink news and squatting rights. Maybe we could start with you, Anne, as way of introduction. Why is this area so important to you? Uh, well, I have lived experience, <laughs> so I got into this whole deal through being unemployed and then volunteering with the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, and through the union, uh, I heard about the economics behind this whole crazy system of beating up on the unemployed, mm. and that uh, led me to modern monetary theory, which is the economics that we hope to look at in the show. And what about you, Kevin? What's, why, why is it so important to you? Uh, I, I kind of got dragged in it through politics. I, I've been a member of a couple of um, different political organisations, and the last one was a mob called the Australian Workers' Party, uh, and their basis for their economic platform was uh, the same, modern monetary theory, uh, which is a, an understanding of how the economy works, um, primarily driven by a fellow called Bill Mitchell. Uh, and once you gain an understanding of how the economy works, you can then understand what is and what isn't possible. And what I've learnt is that uh, what we accept as normal is basically just a, a neoliberal brainwashing that's come in since the 1970s. And this whole thing about what we can and can't afford and, and, uh, and how a lot of people are suppressed is, is artificial, is, is a construct. Um, and so once you learn this information, you just feel like shouting it from the rooftops. It, it's, it's a, it becomes important. And when you say what, what we kind of can't afford is that in terms of uh, like educa- the national budget, education, healthcare and stuff or what we can afford personally? Well it flows through the whole lot but um, uh, you know what we learn, when you understand how the economy works you understand about currency creation, you also understand that taxation does not pay for government spending that the government has an infinite capacity to spend, uh, it chooses where it wants to spend uh, it makes choices and those choices over the last 30-40 years have been driven by uh, neoliberal ideology which, mm. which means a lot of people's unfortunate positions are artificial and can be changed. So there's a rich history of unwaged workers fighting back and you know, pretty much every revolution in history has been driven by the unwaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does the fighting look like in current day Australia? Uh, it, it ranges now. So we always like to say that it's the neoliberal policy that's created us. <laughs> So, uh, and us being, it includes Australian Unemployed Workers Union. It also includes groups that are fighting against cashless welfare. 
which is the um, sequestered uh, income. And it includes uh, the big ideas. And so we're looking at it from the big idea angle, which is uh, to change the public imagination about what's possible economically. In, in particular, um, uh, how's playing out politically? Well, you'd expect the um, uh, the coalition to be uh, conservative and neoliberal as part of their, their sort of platform, their, their free enterprise platform. So neoliberalism and... Uh, and the Liberal Party, uh, what do you call it, mission statement, form a nice handshake. It gets disappointing when you see the Labor Party um, adopting a lot of the same uh, policies mm. um, uh, where you see duplication. And I understand why they do it. They do it because uh, their economic credentials are important and, and they've been, they're under a lot of scrutiny. But it would be nice to see a lot less compromise and a lot more uh, progression. Uh, and it was interesting to see that with uh, Adam Bant coming, uh, becoming the new leader of the, uh, the Greens, uh, I had a feeling that the, um, the, the Greens were becoming a bit more conservative under Dean Natale, uh, toning down the message, adopting the neoliberal sort of talk. Uh, now we've got uh, Adam Bant coming in talking about a Green New Deal, which is straight out of the, um, well, straight out of the Bernie Sanders uh, 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 Platform exactly. um, yeah. and, and, and is based on modern monetary theory. This, this, the, the, the whole thing about the Green New Deal and changing the economy is about how do you pay for it. Well, that's about understanding how the economy works. And what were some of the things that Bant was talking about? Like he, he was, he was quite. I guess you could call it radical, but uh, well, uh, Anne probably knows more about the detail <laughs> of this than I do. Yeah. So, well, uh, we're still waiting and watching on that one. Um, we love the policies. Uh, but we feel that uh, his un- their understanding or at least their promotion of the economics is still not quite there yet as far as a truly progressive understanding. So that means that there, it seems like at the moment that the Greens are still wrestling with the question of how do you pay for it? Uh, so how do you pay for a transition out of a fossil fuel economy? So we know that it's technologically feasible mm. And what modern monetary theory tells you is that it's also financially feasible. It's not only feasible, it's, it's preferable um, because the whole, the whole essence behind the economy is, is that it's underwritten by productivity. Uh, so if you have a, a change from fossil fuel to renewables, you've got all this activity, all this productivity, and that's good for the economy. So the whole, this whole myth about we can't afford it is, the, in fact, the exact opposite. We, we can't afford not to because the productivity and the, uh, the good that it's going to do the economy economy to transition uh, it outweighs everything so it, it needs to be understood definitely and in terms of the future we can't really go down this track any longer economically environmentally socially uh, none of it makes sense uh, the way we're going so it needs to change yeah. so I, should, oh, yeah. oh, just to go back to your question about how the um, struggle is playing out um, especially for people who are struggling individually and one of the interesting things uh, I've discovered in this trip is that uh, the struggle takes place in the world of ideas. So it takes place in the world of academia. Okay. And so there are even, uh, to the extent that there are even student movements protesting against what they're being taught at an undergraduate and postgraduate level. It's amazing. So these students are organising and... Um, they're having to deal with a an see what's holding neoliberalism together like glue <laughs> is this economics that's been debunked. It was debunked two decades ago, yep. uh, and 
students are waking, they're the first ones to wake up to it because they're the ones that have to learn this stuff, you know, and, and regurgitate it in assignments or whatever. And so they're, they're arcing up. Um, and they actually do have some uh, backing by some important players like the central banks. Uh, and we'll be actually hearing in our first show from one of these students uh, describing what's going on. Oh, fantastic. That was my next question. The, mm. the, show, the first show is going to air this Friday, the 14th of February. What are you going to be talking about? Who, who are you interviewing? Uh, we're going we're gonna to blunder our way through our first radio <laughs> show because we're both novices, um, so, so uh, don't expect a slick show. But uh, I guess we're going um, uh, to introduce, expand on what we're talking about here um, and hopefully interview a couple of people who actually know what they're talking about as opposed to us amateurs. Um, mm-hmm. but, yeah. We should point out that neither of us have economic <laughs> <laughs> training. <laughs> neither of us are, uh, have the credentials, but I reckon that makes us even more qualified to talk about it. Yeah. Our, our job is to interpret for the for the because we, we, we do um, uh, associate with a lot of academics and it's a, it's, it, it's a brain something that just... Um, so our job is to take the information in and turn it into normal speak because if we can understand it, then ordinary people can understand yeah, it. Because I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I'd like to ask, what is neoliberalism? <laughs> okay, neoliberalism very simply is, uh, is an economic state of mind where the individual uh, is more important than society. And this was um, heralded by a group of uh, Chicago economists during the 1950s and the 60s where they said that if, if the individual is allowed to reach their full economic potential, that will be good for society because the, um, uh, the wealth that they accumulate will trickle down through the economy. Uh, and this was... Uh, this was uh, accepted by Reagan and Thatcher as the two main political leaders and ever since then, that was the 1970s, ever, ever since then it's been adopted by uh, Western uh, democracies all around the world. So it, it's based on the individual is, uh, is more important than society. Uh, previously, and this was still under conservative governments through the Menzies era, there was a, a post-World War II period where we uh, were rolling out a thing called the Bretton Woods Program which was uh, still um, capitalism but it was a capitalism with a more... Uh, socially aware context. Where and also back then they um, all agreed, both sides of politics amazingly agreed um, pre, pre the 1970s that full employment was necessary and achievable and that's what they did. Yeah. And then post 1970s with the introduction of this alternate econ- economics which comes under many labels, it includes um, neoclassical economics or Chicago schools as Kev mentioned um, then that turned into a neoliberal policy, and those policy settings include, you know, what we call austerity, which means mm. cutting back on so- the social safety net. Uh, includes privatisation, which means taking uh, service delivery at, and um, infrastructure building and all of those things out of the public sphere and into the private. Uh, and includes deregulation. So. All of those, uh, the, um, the rationale for all of that comes out of macroeconomics and that's why I think the theme of the show will be everyone needs to know their macro. And is there, is there any two places in the world that you look at, uh, you know, sort of like as the example of what we're not wanting and then maybe a place that this, they're doing it right in terms of the macroeconomics? Most of them are the places that are not doing it right. Um, and, of course, the, um, the US is a shining example of that. And we follow them. Um, places that do it right? Um, well, at, 
At the moment, the best examples we've got are the campaigns that are opposing the status quo. So the status quo has pretty much captured every nation state mm. <laughs> around the world. It's spread from the Western world into the uh, Southern Hemisphere. Uh, so you get pockets of, of the, the great stuff happening. So uh, Argentina for a little while was implementing some of the uh, recommendations that come out of modern monetary theory. Um, so they briefly had a, a version of a thing called a job guarantee. And then, of course, as Kevin mentioned, uh, Bernie Sanders is basing his Green New Deal on the understanding of economics coming through modern monetary theory. And we're hoping that the Greens here will follow suit. Yeah. Now, it's, uh, uh, now it was um, Stephanie Kelton, who is um, Bernie Sanders, uh, one of his chief political advisers, uh, studied economics in Adelaide and came across Bill Mitchell's work. So she's a devotee of this, um, uh, my understanding is, that uh, uh, Bill Mitchell first and then uh, Stephanie uh, came along afterwards. So um, it's, uh, I don't, it's pretty good to have um, a potential President of the United States basing his economic <laughs> platform on, on some fellow who uh, came out of uh, Melbourne Uni in the, in the 1970s yeah. and started thinking differently. So, yeah, we yeah. love to say that MMT is almost homegrown. It's, it's, we, I think we have one of the world's leading economists right at our doorstep. Oh, great. Just around the corner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he's based in Newcastle, Bill Mitchell. Okay. Yeah. And, and uh, Bernie Sanders, is he the real deal? Because I've seen sort of him, he's always sort of been involved in... Uh, I, I remember seeing like a, a video of him and Noam Chomsky in the 80s. Like he sort of seems to be on the right side of the history. He seems to be the real deal to me. Um, uh, I, am not, I, I don't know Bernie Sanders' uh, policy in detail, but everything he's said seems to be consistent. Uh, and you need to understand that in politics it's a game of compromise and so the message is often uh, altered to sound popular but um, but I get the impression that his policy settings, that his uh, social uh, his social awareness um, he, he, he seems to me to be the real deal he, and he's getting older, he's got less and less to lose yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and one of the things to point out when we're talking about the policy and the policy settings and where is it being implemented well the thing that the MMT economists always want to point out is that, like it or not, you've got MMT happening because MMT is simply a description of how money works. Mm. So money works whether you're understanding how it works or not, whether you're um, putting a neoliberal setting on it or whether you're putting a more progressive setting over it. So the MMT is happening now, whether or not we like it because we're all using money, and uh, it's simply they're describing how that system works. Yeah. Well, it's been fantastic having you guys in to give us a little taste of the show on Friday. So that, that's, it's going to be airing every second Friday of the month? Just the second Friday, so once a month. Oh, once, once a month, but yep, this on the, the second, second Friday. Friday. Excellent. Uh, th thanks so much for coming in to speak to us. Thanks, Thank Pat. you. Thanks for having us. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same thing, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. 
law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. VCR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to the Trisia Community Radio. Please subscribe now. Tisa miyuna ila ila Trisia Community Radio araja al ishtrak al an. Ningal ungalin samuha vanali Trisia ray kertu kondir kandirikal. Hindre nayingal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Metsuketsek Radio i Gairanin oretangudam melbumi hai kaotin. Hima artsanakrevetsek iper Trisia ray antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Rumination. 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program. Featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855 AM. Okay, we have Molly Wilmot in the studio. Molly has come in especially for us through the traffic in Melbourne. <laughs> and um, she is the 33rd President of the National Union of Student, Students, Australia's peak representative body for post-school students. And she's um, started her new role just this January and she's right into it. Yeah. I believe uh, last week you had a conference with all the presidents around the country and uh, it sounded pretty hectic when I was trying to catch you to yeah. uh, set this up. First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of been a hit the ground running sort of thing. Started January 1st, had a conference last week, uh, and then obviously a lot of, a lot of media attention with, uh, with international students and students over the past few weeks. So it's been trial by fire, but good. <laughs> <laughs> hit the ground running. Um, well, exactly that uh, topic, I suppose, is the theme of our um, discussion today. We've been talking about the coronavirus and um, media coverage and um, issues of racism. Um, and just for listeners that have just tuned in, um, we had a bit of a chat this morning about um, sort of how it's been panning out um, in Australia. So we've had... Uh, several actions by the Australian Federal Government um, responding uh, to contain the virus. Uh, the major ones being a placed, they've placed a travel ban, ban to Australia from mainland China by anyone who's not an Australian citizen or permanent resident. And they have quarantined returning citizens and residents on Christmas Island. Um, 
But the issues um, relating to the virus go beyond just health. There are serious concerns that misinformation and negative media coverage are turning what is a public health matter into one of race. Um, and we, we talked through some of the examples of, of that that have that been happening um, in Australia and also internationally. Um, one such group caught in the crossfire is the student body. Um, so Molly is here to talk to us about the impact of the virus and its coverage on students studying in Australia. Um, so can we first ask you about the general emotional sense you are getting from students at present? Um, I, think it's, I think it's a bit like what's currently started is sort of like an oppositional thing. Of I think there's there's a perception and an emotional response from a lot of domestic students um, about not wanting to get sick or this virus spread, which is obviously a lot of it um, led by uh, this perception of what the disease is and this idea of like the racism behind it. And then the other side is we have over I think 35% of the entire student body are international students, um, especially international students from mainland China or. Um, Asia, so I think there's the other side of like of fear about what this virus is, how it's affecting their their country, their their family, and their education, which is why we've come out um, in the past few days and said that we should be lifting the travel ban um, and sort of trying to mitigate any of the any of the effects that have happened happened because of this like spreading of um, misinformation about the coronavirus. Have you had any direct contact uh, by telephone with any international students stuck in China under the travel ban? Um, yeah, and it's it's not even in my role as a US president. Like, oh, a really good friend of mine is currently stuck in Wuhan, um, and he's under an incredible amount of stress right now. He had an interview with the ABC the other day, where he's just he's stuck in a room, um, and his quarantine is nearly up. But he doesn't know if he can get back. He doesn't know what's happening with his studies. He studies at ANU. Um, and he's he's under an incredible amount of stress and anxiety because of it. Um, but the the amount of like we like there's also an issue of like we don't actually know how many people are being impacted by the travel ban. Like I know that in my university, University of Melbourne, it's about ten thousand. Um, a friend of mine who is the president of the Flinders Union University Student Association, there's about six thousand students there. So it's like we're still trying to figure out how much is actually is affecting students. I think the government figures put the number of um, uh, students abroad um, who have student visas to um, to study in Australia at about 100,000, which is, I think, about 97,000 yeah. tertiary students. So, which is, which is I mean, huge. obviously not all of them are in China, yep. but a large proportion um, would be. So we're talking huge, oh, huge numbers. A, a huge portion of... of tertiary students right now. Um, there's empty lecture halls. There's <laughs> empty lecture halls, but it's also like we don't know what students got in before the travel ban. We don't know what students like are current, currently under quarantine. We don't like know how many students are still are still stuck home. So that's sort of like there's a lot of grey area of like we don't actually know how badly this is affecting students. And your friend who's, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in the room in China waiting out his time, is that... Um, a self-imposed quarantine or has the government of China sort of come to the communities and, and, and imposed those uh, restraints? Look, I, I don't really want to speak for him right now. I think sort of my role as a friend and also someone who's leading the union is making sure he's okay. So I'm not really sure what the, the situation is. All I know is that he's there. <laughs> sure. Yep. 
In terms of uh, students back here, you mentioned um, health concerns. Are you also um, hearing wider concerns coming out of the coronavirus? Um, are, there, are there other issues that are affecting students here? Um, yeah, I think this is significantly the most impactful thing that has happened in the higher education space or just the the um sorry the uh immigration space in a very very long time of when you have imposed travel bans or when students have to defer their degree what happens to their visas what happens to their rent um, what happens to their leases at home what happens to um, the incredible amount of fees that they put into doing their education and it's sort of like those are the real questions that we're still trying to figure out um, and look, I, I don't want to feed into this narrative of international students as cash cows as well. I think that's really an important distinction to make of like a lot of people and universities in general see international students as a way to make a lot of money. Um, at Melbourne, 37.5% of all students are international students. They pay uh, an exorbitant amount of fees more than domestic students. Um, but I think it's important to note that like what happens when that money goes, like what happens to our education system. Like if a student has to defer, they have a, like an allotted time to do their education. Do they have a house when they get back? Do they have a job when they get back? Like, that's like there, there are also just like not non-corona health issues of like when you put in all those things. Like it's it's hard enough being a domestic student, but being an international student, like mental health, loneliness, anxiety, like those are all exacerbated um, when you put in these restrictions and you you add in societal racism to that, and then it's just it's such a, a just a huge issue. I think we'll, we'll figure out the effects of in the next year or so. Well, it's already been um, clear that international students can face um, emotional mm. stress and mental health. So, yeah, this is just one more factor on top of that. And there's, you know, I think there's a distinction between all these practical issues, accommodation and university course start dates and... Um, worries about finishing courses but um, then we've got the the other um, impacts of um, feeling judged or scrutinized mm. um, because of the virus and um, their possible ethnic connection to it um, I think um, that's the the question we were talking about this morning and there's some pretty um, clear examples of um, harassment and, mm. and racism that have been reported um, what's your perception, um, speaking on behalf of the student community, about racism and fear-mongering against Asians? Um, I think it's already existed before the coronavirus. Um, I think unless there's a, there's a huge cultural shift in our universities, it'll probably exist further. Um, one of the most unspoken issues about in the higher education space is international student suicide um, and, and just rampant mental health issues. Um, when there are already issues of students being excluded from classes because it, English is their second language or students... Um, there's this perception that, like, if you work with international students and you get a lower mark because they don't understand the content, um, that, that that's a real perception that I've heard before. Um, yeah, th this, is just, this is just another thing on top. Um, and when you add in, like, just the fear-mongering that is happening in the media right now um, about this disease as well, then... It's it's huge, um, yeah. What's your understanding of how the universities and the government are responding to these type of issues, as opposed to the health concerns? Look, I I think the reason why we exist is as a union is that nothing 
nothing is good enough. Like, they're, they're, no response to international student mental health has been effective enough. No response to things like the coronavirus has been effective enough and, and humane and, and fair. Um, look, there are... There, there are like initiatives of like you know stress less and like we'll bring in a dog on campus, but there hasn't been any like structural or institutional um, addressing of it. Like things like making sure that your counselling services have English second language options, making sure that you are translating documents, making sure that like the that you're like changing the way that you teach in classes. It's like little things that just haven't been done yet. And I think that you know when you add in what's happening right now with coronavirus into like because there's going to be students who return back to campus in two or three weeks who are going to experience racism. Um, and when those services aren't there, then what happens? Are you, um, are you aware of whether the universities are putting on extra services? Um, I think it differs from university to university. Um, I think some concessions have been made at, at bigger universities about it. A lot of content is going online. Um, I don't know, I haven't been reported anything happening in student services to make sure that... Um, the response is, response is better. Um, I know, all I know is that um, student services are absolutely swamped right now um, with, with, with students asking what's happening with, it, with, the, with the virus and their status as a student. Um, and have you heard um, whether, whether there's a difference in the, um, the situation at Monash because they've decided to defer the beginning of their year? Have, has that sort of given them... More, um, more, more space to, to, to sort of work through some of these issues um, rather than the universities that have kept to their normal timetable? Um, I'm not really sure what the situation at Monash is um, besides the cancelling of O-Week. Um, our representatives there are still trying to work through what they're doing. Um, it, it's going to have a significant effect on our student associations as well. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty much just working with our student associations to see how they're going and how they're interacting with students. Um, not too sure what's happening with them, though. And um, Ella, did you have something to contribute? Uh, yeah, I was just going to ask in terms of um, receiving more support from the universities, are there any particular actions you'd like to see them take? Oh, oh that's, that's like asking for a Christmas list. Um, <laughs> yeah, what's your wish list? <laughs> um, <laughs> we might have to just limit it to the, the oh, that's top, top one. Um, the top one is making sure that all student services and counselling services have English second language, especially Mandarin options, um, that all students are, like student services like counselling um, and uh, enrolment and things like that are moved online or moved into a more accessible way than having to go into the student services that more staff are put on um, to just deal with the, the influx of um, requests and that I, I guess is a more long-term thing but cultural sensitivity training um, for tutors, lecturers and student service staff. Yeah, maybe they don't have it already. Yeah. <laughs> thank, you, thank you so much for coming. That's in. Right. Yeah, we're going to have to wrap up now, unfortunately. I've got a few um, advice and helpline contacts, but I think I might pop them on the website for anyone that's interested. Um, so thanks, Molly, yeah, for coming right. in. And um, to all the tertiary students out there, um, whatever your background or situation, um, let's all just look after each other and um, try and be mindful of what people are going through. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Thanks, Molly. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.